Father, we do thank you for today. Just have a sense, Lord, that you want to speak to us, that you want to bless us, that you want to meet with us. You always want to do that, Lord, but I pray that you would be opening ears and hearts and minds and that you would just move. We just give you permission, Lord, to move in this place as we attend to your word, as we attend to your sacrament. You are the real, the living God, and you are in our midst. We thank you for that, and we anticipate all that you want to do in us and in our church. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm not crazy about tomatoes. I, you know, like them on a sandwich or a salad from time to time, but by themselves, just growing up, I wasn't crazy about tomatoes, but I think part of my problem is that the tomatoes that we usually eat from the grocery store or a restaurant aren't really tomatoes. We call them tomatoes, and they have, you know, somewhat of a color of tomatoes, but they're really a mushy excuse for the real thing. Last summer, some friends came over for dinner, and they brought some tomatoes. They were Cherokee purple tomatoes that they had grown in their own garden and these things were incredible and I discovered that maybe I could be crazy about tomatoes if they all tasted like that one. Some years ago, before that tomato experience, uh, Paisley and I tried to grow some tomatoes in our backyard and I didn't really know anything about gardening but I thought, okay, well, we'll plant a tomato uh, vine in the ground and I seem to recall something about tomato steaks or, so I said, okay, we'll get some of those and, and as the thing grew, we you know, tied it to the stake and made sure it did, it did its thing, didn't fall over but it turns out the steaks we got were pretty small, they weren't really strong enough and so eventually we got you know, the industrial grade metal grate thing that you stick in the ground and, and that helped a lot and it supported the tomato plant. Um, last night, I was over at the same house of these friends for dinner that brought the tomatoes uh, last summer, and I was looking at their tomato vines. These things were huge. I mean, they were over my head, and sure enough, they had these big, strong stakes in the ground and some of the metal trellis things supporting it. Well, why is that? Because without that support, without that structure, as beautiful as a tomato plant is, as good as its fruit can be, it would fall over. And it might produce a few tomatoes, but they would rot in the ground and the bugs would get them. It's interesting when we think about it that organic, living, growing things, and they grow in this mysterious way, but they still need tending to. They still need structure and support. We can go back all the way to the beginning and understand why that is. God set it up that way. He created this incredible world. He created this incredible garden of Eden with full of just these organic things that grow. But he placed human beings in that garden. Genesis chapter 2 verse 15 says, to work it and to keep it. It was never supposed to be automatic. Part of creation itself was human beings and our God-given vocation to be involved so that we could water or plant or fertilize or put in tomato steaks as we tended and kept the garden. God has done something very similar with his church. He wants to see spiritual life and fruit from his people, but it's not automatic. Spiritual health and growth requires tending and keeping. We know that it is God who grows the church. Christ is the head of the church. The spirit produces the fruit in us. 
And like a tomato vine or some other beautiful flower, there's this organic growth in the church that we cannot fully explain and we know we cannot make it happen. And yet he calls us to be involved. Our active participation is one of the required elements for a church to be spiritually healthy and bear much fruit. I suppose God could have set it up in a way that it just grows completely automatically, needs no tending, no keeping, and that all the people in the church would just be spectators, but that's not how he chose to do it. Instead, he has called his people, empowers them, equips them, every single one of them, to play a role in tending and keeping his body. We've been in the book of Acts for a couple of Sundays. We've been seeing how the Holy Spirit was at work in the earliest days of the church. Going back a couple of weeks, we saw that there was this explosion of the gospel on the day of Pentecost, and that really launched the church out into the world. The gospel in the beginning and continues to be the thing that propels the church. And so if you lose the gospel, the church becomes an empty structure. But after the gospel exploded into the world, it didn't just sort of die out and say that was interesting. It created community. We looked at that last week from Acts 2.42 and following that the gospel creates this incredible, this radical type of community. So we have gospel explosion. We have gospel community. This morning we're going to look at gospel service. You see, the early church was growing fast. The first day, Pentecost, there was 3,000, and then it kept growing from there. Our text for this morning, Acts chapter 6, begins by saying, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number. If you go back and read 4 and 5 in Acts, you'll see that the church was growing despite external opposition from religious leaders who were trying to stamp out the message of the gospel. And internal corruption on the part of its own members, Ananias and Sapphira, and what happened with that whole situation. The church has always had external pressures and internal struggles, and yet it continues to grow. The church cannot be stopped. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so the church was growing rapidly. It was growing organically. But it was getting to the point that without some tending to, without some necessary structure and support, it was going to fall in on itself. If you brought your Bibles with you this morning, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. We're going to see in this text the problem that the church faced, the solution God gave them, And the result of that solution. So first, the problem. We saw last week when we were looking at gospel community that they practiced this radical type of sharing. They shared life together. They shared meals together. They shared their faith together. But they also shared their possessions together. People were selling their land, giving their possessions so that anyone that had need in their midst would be provided for. Well, that ministry had grown. And the particular way it was being expressed is care for widows. A widow in the ancient world, especially one without children, did not have the support structures to provide for themselves. But in the Old Testament, we saw over and over how God uh, told his people to care for widows, orphans and widows. He instructed people to look after their needs. And Jesus exhibited that in his ministry. We see him minister to a widow who had lost her son. 
So the early church was just doing what their Lord had commanded, taking care of widows, feeding the poor, loving people in intangible, hands-on ways. This ministry of compassion was part of the witness to the gospel and was probably part of why the gospel was spreading so fast. It wasn't just word. There was also these incredible loving acts. People were saying, I want that. I want the God who's responsible for that. But it was an area where they experienced some growing pains. Verse 1, chapter 6. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number... A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, at first, this might not seem like a major problem. I mean, there's always going to be complaints, right? You cannot make everyone happy in a church. And this is just one ministry of the church. And it's not like the preaching has gone off the rails. There's no false teaching being introduced. There's no huge moral failure on the part of the leadership. It's just a little bit of complaining. That's to be expected, right? Well, this problem is a little more serious than at first glance. To begin with, it shows us that the ministry is ineffective. It's not meeting the need. Some widows, yes, were receiving care. They were receiving a distribution of food, but others were not. That is not acceptable. God didn't say, care for some widows or care only for the Hebrew widows. He told them to care for widows, and they're not. And when we're not doing something that God has commanded us to do, we call that disobedience. And that's a huge problem. Furthermore, these complaints that they were receiving reveal that the church in Jerusalem at its earliest days was experiencing a race problem. You see, the Hellenists referred to in the text are those Jewish people who spoke the Greek language and were Greek in their culture. They were immigrants to Jerusalem. They were coming from other places in the Roman Empire. The Hebrews were the natives. It's the Greek widows, the Hellenists, who are being neglected. Their needs are not being met. And there's this resentment growing along racial lines. And we need to keep in mind that at this point, both groups are Jewish. This isn't the bigger problem that the church was about to face between Jews and Gentiles. That's the major obstacle that's going to dominate a lot of the New Testament. It almost tore the church apart. It even set leaders like Peter and Paul against each other. This little dispute of the Jews in Acts 6 is a molehill compared to the mountain of the Gentile question that's coming. So if you can't figure out how to get these two Jewish groups to get along, you're in serious trouble when it comes to the Gentiles being welcomed into the fellowship of Christ. So we have this disobedience. That's a problem. We have this racial tension. That's a problem. Finally, this widow ministry is a threat to the gospel itself, it not being run properly. It's these kind of problems that can distract and overwhelm leaders in the church and make them ineffective. The apostles, those who had been with Jesus and who were called by him to preach the gospel, to teach it, were having to stop and to deal with this. They were having to neglect their call. And if if they had to take charge of that ministry, then they would be neglecting the call to preach the gospel. And we've seen that no gospel, no propulsion, no church. So it's not a small problem. It's a big problem. 
You have the disobedience, you have the racial division, and you have this threat to the gospel being preached, the ministry of the word. So what was the solution? Well, we're told in verses two and three. And the 12, those are the apostles, the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. So there are three parts to their solution. First, they gathered the body. Don't skip over that part. They, They gathered the body together. Now, the text says the full number of the disciples. We don't know exactly what that means. Was it the 3,000, 5,000? Was it just some key leaders? We're not sure. But they gathered the body together. Instead, instead of saying, okay, we got this. We're the apostles. We're going to figure this out on our own. They recognize, hey, this isn't just a problem for the leadership of the church. This is something we need to gather the body together and to say, hey, how are we going to deal with this? Because it's important. One of the wisest things they did was to not take it on their own shoulders, but to gather the body of Christ so that they had an opportunity, the whole body, to be involved, to get into the work of tending and keeping. So that was the first part of their solution. They gathered the body together. Second, they protected the ministry of the word. They were not going to stop preaching the word of God and put themselves in charge of this ministry to widows. Not because they thought it was unimportant, but they realized that if they put themselves in charge, again, the, the, the preaching ministry, the word ministry of the gospel would suffer. Sometimes the church elevates its pastors. We put them on a pedestal. Sometimes we do this by making them a celebrity pastor. That's often what happens in really large uh, mega churches. But in liturgical churches like ours, we also, also have a problem. We create this sharp divide between clergy, those who are ordained, and laity, those who are not. And we have this expectation that the clergy are the ones who do the ministry of the church. We have this thought that maybe they have an extra amount of spiritual gifts. But they don't, I can tell you that. And I think what we need to do is to put pastors back in their place. Sometimes it's because of our egos that we have stepped up in ways that we shouldn't have, that we have taken on more than we should have, that we have thought this arrogant idea that, well, I can do all the ministries of the church. Well, we cannot and we should not. So sometimes it's the pastor's ego. Sometimes it's a congregation. Squeezing a pastor into this role either by placing a lot of expectations on them to do all these things or by being uninvolved and unavailable and leaving many important tasks undone and so the pastors pick up the slack when they should not be the ones to do it. I think the church needs to think carefully about what ordained ministry looks like. When we ordain someone to a ministry, especially to be a presbyter, It's a relatively narrow calling that we're ordaining them to. In my ordination service on the back of the bulletin, I included this quote. Now, it was written by a pastor, but it was written from the perspective of a congregation. And I think it summarizes what ordination is supposed to be. So congregation speaking to minister says this, minister with word and sacrament to us in all the different parts and stages of our lives. This isn't the only task in the life of faith, but it is your task. We will find someone else to do the other important and essential task. This is yours, word and sacrament. 
Pastors are important, but they need to be put back in their place. They need to not be involved in every single ministry of the church. But that's only gonna be possible because of the third part of the solution and really the linchpin. We see it in verse three. They say, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. So what did they do? They raised up serpent leaders. To be more accurate, they put it on the congregation to put forward their own servant leaders. This was the key to their solution. Bring us people who are able to serve. Bring us people who are ready and willing to get their hands dirty tending God's church. Without these servant leaders, these initial seven, which I think represents just ministries within the church, without them, either the problem of the widows would have been neglected, it would have gotten worse, or the apostles would say, all right, forget it, we'll do it. And they'll step in and stop doing the preaching of the gospel they were supposed to do. Now, when the apostle asked for these servant leaders, they didn't just say, just give us anyone. They gave some qualifications, three, of good repute. They have to have a good reputation with people, able to care for people, connect with people, seen with favor in the eyes of people. Second, they were to be full of the Spirit. Now, every Christian is full of the Spirit, but these were people manifesting the holiness of the Spirit in their lifestyle, the fruits of the Spirit in their ministry. And thirdly, they had to be full of wisdom able to take complex situations and deal with them with God's wisdom. The apostles obviously thought very highly of this ministry. They were not sloughing it off. They were calling godly leadership for every ministry of the church. It's interesting to see who the congregation put forward. They put forward seven men that all have Greek names. Which means this, this mixed group, the congregation of Hebrews and Hellenists, put forward people from the offended group and empowered those to lead in this ministry. I think that showed a lot of wisdom, especially in two ways. First, it helps ease the tension when you, when you give the responsibility to the minority group. Could have also helped the language barriers if that was part of the problem of the breakdown of the ministry. They gave it to the Hellenists. But second, I think it illustrates a great principle. If you notice a need, if you care about something enough to complain about it, then take the energy you're using to complain and be part of the solution. It's not very helpful to the church to have someone point out things that aren't going well or ministries that need to be done but isn't willing to get involved. God doesn't need critics for his church. He needs gardeners. So if you see a trellis that needs to be built, you see something that needs to be watered, you see some weeds that need to be pulled, grab some gloves and get involved. So this Hellenist group rose up these people who were complaining initially but then willingly served and became part of the solution. I want to come back to this phrase, servant leaders, because I think sometimes we hear the word leader and depending on who we are and our personality and gift mix, we might think, well, well, I'm not a leader. And I, I don't have what it takes to really make a difference because I'm not a, a type A, take charge personality. I don't love the limelight. I think that's a pretty narrow and maybe worldly definition of leadership. I want us to think a bit differently about it. There's three qualifications given. They have good reputation, 
full of the Spirit, full of wisdom, doesn't mention anything about type A personality or loving the limelight. Let me suggest another litmus test for whether you're a leader. If you care about a need or a ministry in the body, if you're praying about it, if you're giving your time and energy to make sure this ministry happens, then you are a leader. You are giving of yourself to make a difference, to make a change. What about servant? All of us would agree, and we know, the disciple is called to be a servant. Sometimes we might feel like a particular ministry is beneath us, or it's not in our gifting, or it's not worth our time. It's fascinating that two of these seven men that were appointed were named Stephen and Philip. They were appointed to this ministry of table, this ministry of widows, but that's not all that they were doing. One chapter later, Stephen gives a defense of the gospel and becomes the first martyr of the church. And Philip is an incredibly effective evangelist. He takes the gospel to Samaria and he was instrumental in bringing the Christian faith to Ethiopia. So Stephen and Philip are used in these powerful ways for God's mission. They had lots of gifts, but they were not above serving in these less glamorous ways. They didn't say, no, I'm sorry, I'm called to the ministry of evangelism, so I'm not going to help out with the widows. Now, God does give a special grace to some to perform acts of service. That's a gift listed in the New Testament, but every Christian is called to service. In the Anglican Church, every priest and bishop must be ordained a deacon first, a servant Not as a stepping stone, oh, let me do my little service part so I can move on, but as the entire foundation for what ministry is. We have this saying that once a deacon, always a deacon. It follows after the pattern of our Lord, who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the king of kings speaking. That's the one who left all the glory of heaven to stoop down as a human being And to wash our feet. And if that is the pattern he set, is there any ministry, is there any calling that would be beneath us? What we discover when we stoop down and and do the, the simple things, the less glamorous things, is that there's already someone there serving. You beat us to it. You meet Jesus Christ down there when you're on your knees serving. So this is the solution that we see. The apostles in their wisdom gathered the body They protected the ministry of the word, and then they raised up servant leaders. So what happened next? Luke tells us the result in verse 7 at the end of this passage. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So if you're following along the sweep of Acts thus far, uh, the church is growing. The gospel is going forward. It's going forward despite obstacles, opposition, internal things. And then they come to this obstacle with the widows. What's going to happen here? Is that going to slow down the church? The church responds in the wisdom. They add some structure. They call servant leaders. And then what happens? It keeps growing. The ministry goes forward and they saw more fruit. The reason was because servant leaders stepped forward. They met a need. They didn't put it all on the apostles to continue so they could continue to preach the gospel. The church took ownership of its own problems. They got involved. 
And the result was the disciples multiplied. Not more warm bodies in the pews. Disciples multiplied. More people following Christ. It's great when you have a big Sunday and there's more people in the pews. But the kind of growth that every church wants is more people passionately following Jesus Christ. And that's the kind of growth they were seeing. There were also, and I find this humorous, even priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Thanks be to God. But I think that's of note. The religiously devout, those who thought they got it, realized they didn't get it, and so they got it. They saw Jesus. They started following him. So this is the stuff we love to hear, isn't it? These are the success stories of the church. These are the the stories that we hear about in our our own midst or another church. And we say, wow, praise God, that's happening. The church is growing. The gospel is going forward. More disciples, more conversions, even religious people seeing Jesus and falling in love. But sometimes I think we have a hard time connecting the dots. Because if the church hadn't addressed the problem, if they didn't add structures at the right time, if servant leaders didn't step forward, this wouldn't have happened. Do we realize that when we put out chairs on a Sunday morning, when we help in children's ministry, when we tutor at an elementary school, do we realize that our simple acts of service are enabling the gospel to go forward? Servant leadership, much of the time, is not glamorous. It's hard work. And it does take sacrifice. But this is what God uses to enable his gospel to spread out. And his church, like a beautiful, fruitful vine, to grow and bear much fruit. Friends, God is looking for gardeners for his church. It was never his intention to let it grow wildly and unattended. But he wants to see a cultivated growth. And we are instrumental in his plans for that. There are some of you in this room this morning whom God is calling to serve and to lead in his church. Could be king of kings. Could be another church. But he's given you the ability and he's given you the qualifications and he's given you the gifts to lead and to serve in a powerful way that's going to bear much fruit. There are untapped resources in this congregation. And one of my regrets is that I didn't tap into the richness of God's spirit at work in you. And I pray that going forward, that God will provide for that. So if you sense the Holy Spirit tugging at your heart in any way, don't turn away from that call. Answer him. Say to him, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And then he'll show you the details of how and and when and what it looks like. He'll equip you. He'll empower you for service. But we have to answer him. So if the Lord is calling you this morning, don't close your ears. Don't harden your heart. Answer him. Answer your Lord's call. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you did and continue to and will forever serve the church. You are its chief servant. Lord, would you bless us with a fresh outpouring of your Holy Spirit that we might be empowered, that our hearts might overflow, and that you might show us, whether it's in this church or wherever you call us to go, that we might serve, that we might tend and keep that we might discover the joy of giving our lives away for the advancement of the gospel. 
Lord, I pray against distractions of false guilt. And I pray a very clear speaking of your Holy Spirit to each and every individual for how you're leading them, how you're calling them, how you have equipped and empowered them, Lord. Give them joy in the serving. Give them fresh experiences of connecting and seeing Jesus in the serving. And Lord, through King of Kings and through your church across the world, we pray an advancement of the gospel. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.